haven't already done so, grab a Bible and let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, we'll start in verse 6 and go to 15 today. I had initially planned to finish today, but it was just too much. So we're going to finish on Easter. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1042. Let's hear the word of the Lord from... Revelation 22, verse 6. And he, that is the the angel, said to me, that is John, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold... I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life And that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is God's word. Many comings in life demand a response. You know, the coming of guests to stay for a weekend, right? Based on their words to show up, we we prepare our homes to receive them. The coming of final exams, you know, based on the word of the teacher, we study to perform well. There's no doubt that exam is coming. There's also the coming of good or bad weather, right? Based on the word of Pete Delkis, we make plans or we cancel them. Countries have experienced the coming of war. Based on the word of a pending threat, citizens had to respond. There's also the coming of children. 
based on the mother's word, it's time to go, right? (laughs) We stop everything to care for the coming baby. Many comings in life demand a response. And in many cases, necessity is laid upon us to respond. How much more when it's the coming of God? A coming that will call the whole world to account. A coming that will establish his kingdom on earth. We've come to the closing remarks uh, of John in in Revelation. Some have called it John's epilogue. It kind of serves as the the opposite bookend to chapter 1. It has a lot in common with the way that Revelation chapter chapter 1 opens the book. But as it closes, John leaves no room for neutrality here. He's given you the vision. He's told you what's, what's going to, what is taking place in the world already and what will take place. And now he's, he's wrapping it up to, to bring this testimony to bear on our lives. And he leaves no room for neutrality. Here's the main idea. In the verses we just read, the reliability of John's testimony and the return of Jesus demand a response. The reliability of John's testimony and the return of Jesus demand a response. So reliability, return, and response. That's where we're going. Let's start with the reliability of John's testimony. The same angel who had showed John the new Jerusalem... Well, he now emphasizes the reliability of God's message to John. Look at verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. He emphasized this before, uh, after describing the new creation in chapter 21, verse 5. He said, these words, meaning these words about the new creation, are trustworthy and true. But in our passage, the angel uh, uses language that started the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. There too, the angel sends his, I mean, God sends his angel to show show John and his servants what must soon take place. And then here in verse 7, he also mentions the words of the prophecy of this book as, as a whole. So in context, the angel now has the whole book of Revelation in view, and he is describing the whole book's reliability. All the revelation is trustworthy and true. Well, how do we know it's trustworthy and true? Well, for starters, these words originate with God, who is trustworthy and true. In Revelation, we meet all kinds of deceivers, don't we? In uh, chapter 12, verse 9, there is a dragon, and he is called the deceiver of the whole world. In chapter 13, verse 14, the false prophet deceives those who dwell on the earth. In chapter 18, verse 23, all of the nations are deceived by Babylon's sorcery. In chapter 2, verse 2, some were claiming to be apostles, but the church had picked up that they are really false. 
In chapter 3, verse 9, some claim to be Jews, but their opposition to Jesus exposes them as liars. And so as we've gone through Revelation, John has painted a world where deception is the norm. It's the norm among the nations. And we experience that too, don't we? I mean, how many lies and half-truths litter the social media world? How many products are sold by twisting the truth or exaggerating a product's ability to satisfy? We are swimming in a world of deception. But these words, John is saying, don't originate in this world. They originate with God in heaven. And he is true. In chapter 6, verse 10, those in heaven know that God is holy and true. In chapter 15, verse 3, they witness how God's ways are just and true. When God sends his own son into the world, Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even more, God's revelation has forged link after link after link with the scriptures of the Old Testament. And and those scriptures reveal a pretty great track record. I mean, think of Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Later, David would say, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. The whole congregation sings in Psalm 111, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. And so the words of Revelation that are given to John are consistent with God's character as he has revealed it across history. He is trustworthy. These words are trustworthy and true also because Jesus is sovereign over history. In verse 13, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. We've seen this pop up three other times in in Revelation. And we talked about it a little bit, about how this is a title taken from Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 45. God used it of himself to distinguish himself from the nations and their idols. The nations and their idols lack any power uh, to determine the future, but God, who is the first and the last, or who knows the beginning, uh, who knows the end from the beginning, uh, not, only, not only does he know the future before it takes place, he creates the future by his sovereign word. Amazingly, though, Jesus takes this title to himself. So of the four times in Revelation, twice God the Father takes it to himself, and twice God the Son takes it to himself. And this is one where Jesus takes this title to himself, meaning that God's plans for history transpire through the person of Jesus. Jesus will make them happen. The words are trustworthy and true because he governs the events of history and he will make them true. 
You will make them come to pass. These words are trustworthy and true because nobody can stop the risen sovereign Jesus. But there's another reason these words are trustworthy. We know that God is fulfilling them in history. Like in recorded history. For example, you know, we could take the... There, there are lots of them in, in, in Revelation, but we'll take just one. Take the last few words of verse 6. It says that God sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That's from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel sees four kingdoms uh, eventually replaced by the kingdom of God's Messiah, Messiah like, like a mountain that's, that's rising upon uh, the earth. And those four kingdoms include Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, all that are rising and falling in that order. And John is writing under Roman rule, and sometimes he's drawing connections to how Rome is one manifestation of the beast. But then John is also seeing Jesus reigning on Mount Zion. In other words, the message that John receives aligns with Daniel's prophecy, most of which had already seen its fulfillment in history and is being fulfilled in John's day as part of Jesus' resurrection victory. And you can look at resources outside the Bible to confirm the rise and fall of all these kingdoms. The way God is fulfilling his promises is consistent with History. Here's another reason to trust John's testimony. The goal of his prophecy is the worship of God. In Scripture, how did you test a true prophet? Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet gives you a sign or a wonder and then says, let's go after other gods... And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Matthew seven fifteen. Jesus says that you will recognize a false prophet by their fruits. So if John gave us these visions to distract us from the true worship of God, then we know he's a liar. But that's not what he does. Notice, actually, the integrity of John's witness in verse 9, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, why does John include this? Twice now. It happened uh, uh, another time in chapter 19, verse 10. And the angel has to tell him there, stop, worship God. The point for including this is to show the focus of proper worship. John is openly acknowledging how easy it is for even him to get the focus of worship wrong. Which shows the integrity of John's message. John is a true prophet. His message is one that stresses the need for our worship to center upon God alone. And he's willing to tell you when even, when even he needs the correction. So considering all these things together, 
Revelation is a reliable testimony. You see this pattern in the gospel writers as well. Where they include, for example, their own unbelief. When Jesus says things to them. Or when he rises from the dead and they think it's a tale. Right? They include their own unbelief within their eyewitness testimony accounts to say, we got it wrong too. And then they saw the truth. So this is consistent with that same pattern we see elsewhere in the New Testament writers. It is a reliable testimony. Now included in that testimony is the return of Jesus. And that, that's the second part of our main idea. Look again at the end of verse 6. God shows his servants what must soon take place. So that's the same words that appeared in chapter 1 verse 1. And we had noted that they allude to Daniel chapter 2. Okay? King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, his magicians can't figure it out. Daniel seeks mercy from the God of heaven. And God reveals to Daniel, it says, deep and hidden things. So Daniel goes to the king. And the king asks whether Daniel has the interpretation. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What will be in the latter days? That's our allusion. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, it has... What must take place in the latter days? Now, glancing back at Revelation, you probably notice the shift, right? Daniel says, what must take place in the latter days? John says, what must take place soon? And that's because the latter days were far away for Daniel, but for John, they were taking place soon. They were taking place soon, not in the sense that he thought they'd happen tomorrow, but in the sense that Jesus' first coming had set in motion these latter days. What is it, though, that must soon take place, according to Daniel chapter 2? Well, if you keep reading Daniel 2, we learn both the dream and its interpretation. Verse 32, he sees a great image. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone, it says, was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces, And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, any of you have a dream like that, we just say you're crazy, right? But... Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, it's shrouded in mystery, and God reveals a special meaning. 
He says the different parts of this image represent various kingdoms, one of them being Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom, which is Babylon. And one kingdom will end up conquering another over and over again until God sets up his kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In the latter days, God's kingdom shall shatter all these rebel kingdoms and bring them to an end until only the Lord's kingdom stands forever. God's kingdom will rise like a great mountain and cover the earth. So by alluding to Daniel 2, John is telling us that in the person and work of Jesus, God's mountain is already rising. That's what must soon take place. Jesus Christ will replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom that will cover the earth and last forever. Now how sobering it is. If you're picking up on these allusions to the Old Testament, how sobering it is to then hear Jesus say in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. And then again in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So Jesus is not only coming to replace all of the rebel kingdoms, he is coming to repay To reward. We saw this in chapter 20, verse 12 as well, but with respect to the wicked in particular. Final judgment is according to works, and these works stand as as the external evidence of what's true inside. The quality of the works points to the true state of the heart. And for some, their works will prove that their allegiance was not to the Lamb. Their works will prove that their heart didn't belong to Christ, but to idols, and God will sentence them to the lake of fire. But for those who belong to Christ, the quality of their works will show that Christ was everything to them. I'm not saying the perfection of their works. I'm saying the quality of their works will show that Christ was everything to them, and Christ will reward them accordingly. Even a work like the thief on the cross, right? That work will show Jesus was his. So we're not talking here about weighing the amount of your works to see whether you get in or not. It's evaluating the quality of these works. And they reveal where your true allegiance lies. Christ will not come to condemn believers where they have failed. He has already taken away their condemnation at the cross. He comes to reward the faithful for what they have done. Now it's true that other places in scripture indicate degrees of reward based on one's faithfulness. But the point here is to stress that all of the rewards that Jesus has promised to his conquerors in chapters 2 and 3 of this book, he will not fail to bring them at his coming. So that was the tree of life, the crown of life, your new name, the morning star, your white garments of purity, citizenship in the new Jerusalem, sitting with Jesus on his throne... Jesus will not overlook your faithfulness, folks. He will bring his reward and he will reward you with with his 
presence and all that comes with it. Of course, the question sometimes rises is that, that rises is related to this word soon. I am coming soon. Well, how soon? Right? Over 1,900 years has passed since John wrote this. That doesn't feel soon-ish. But I think it helps to see the bigger picture here. Uh, Prophets often spoke about the future as one collage of events without indicating how far apart the fulfillment of those events would, would be. Now, some illustrate this with the mountain peaks of of prophecy. There are occasions where, from one perspective, a whole mountain range can look like a single mountain. Uh, This is uh, when we preach through the, ignore the locusts, this is from our Joel series, but uh, get the image here. So they're, they're kind of seeing the end, the last days is one mountain. But it's not until driving a little bit further that you can start to discern how far apart the ridges are. So this is the second screen that you see. So they look like one mountain from initially, and they call those that mountain the latter days. All these things they're seeing. It's like a collage of events. But it's not until you get later down the road in history that you start seeing how these events are transpiring. So, when you get to the New Testament, they see more than the prophets of the Old Testament. In the work of Jesus, the New Testament writers have seen that the latter days are already beginning to unfold. Starting with the coming of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, all of these events have set the latter, that mountain of the latter days has set it in motion. In fact, notice how the angel puts it in verse 10. He says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now that alludes to Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9, where God tells Daniel, after he gives Daniel his vision, he says, Seal up the words of this prophecy. He tells Daniel to seal it up. It wasn't yet time for that mystery to be revealed. For John, however, he must not seal it up. He must reveal the mystery of God's purpose. That's why we see him drawing from Daniel so much. He's telling us what Daniel's prophecy was pointing to. Why is it that John is told not to seal it up because the time is near. What time? The age of prophetic fulfillment. The time when God completes His purpose in the Messiah. The first coming of Jesus set those days in motion. In the whole scheme of God's plan, the latter days are upon us. They are here. The future has broken into the present, so to speak. So from the broader perspective of redemptive history, Jesus' return is just around the corner. 
And so we've seen that God's message to John in Revelation is reliable. And Jesus' return is just around the corner. If those things are true, then necessity is laid upon us to respond. Revelation does not present a message that allows somebody to say, I'm glad Jesus is true for you, he's just not true for me. That's like saying, I'm glad the need for oxygen and water is true for you, just not true for me. To say things like that shows people don't understand the historical and universal claims that the Bible is making. Neutrality is not an option here. That's the third part of our main idea, and it's also your application. The words of this book demand a response from us. The words of this book demand a response from us. Some are going to hear the message of Revelation and remain indifferent, unmoved from their current state of rebellion. We witnessed this callous state of heart earlier in the book. Remember when God's severe judgments are are falling on people in chapter 9 and chapter 16, and John says that they did not repent and give God glory. It's a sobering thing to consider how the human heart can become so hardened over time that despite all the evidence set before them, despite every reason to repent, they still refuse. I think that's part of the backdrop to the angel's words in verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, he says, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. People's response to this word of prophecy will further confirm them in their sinful ways or further commit them to the righteous ways of Jesus. You will read this prophecy and you will go one way or the other. These words are like the prophet's words to Israel, like when God tells Isaiah, you say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Or when Ezekiel had to tell Israel, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. You know, it'd be like a tour guide taking you to a a cliff in the Grand Canyon. And he says to the crowd, all right, everybody can stop right here and take your pictures. But let no one else go past here. And if he does, let him go to his own peril. It's meant to shock you. It's meant to wake you up. Pay attention or your evil will lead you to a point of no return. You will go on doing evil. Don't treat John's testimony that way. Don't ignore the coming of Jesus that way. Rather, we must prepare to meet him. One way we prepare to meet Jesus is by keeping the words of this prophecy. Verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Right? In chapter 1, verse 3, it said, Blessed is the one who reads and who hears and who keeps the words of this prophecy. But here, it's only blessed are those who keep. Assumption being, you've read it and you've heard it already. What's left is you keeping it. But how do we keep the words of this prophecy? Well, in Revelation, keeping has to do with persisting in obedience. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. You see this throughout the Old Testament, keeping the commandments of God, right? It has to do with persisting in obedience, but that plays out in a variety of ways in, in Revelation. Right? At times, it's persisting in obedience to a, an explicit command. Um, chapter 2, verse 5. Repent and do the works of love that you did at first. Chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Chapter 2, verse 25. Hold fast what you have until I come. Chapter 14, verse 7. Fear God and give Him glory. These, these commands give very clear ethical instructions and the Lord expects our follow-through in those ethical instructions. We also keep the prophecy by imitating Christ and what He commends. For example, Jesus is called the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. But then Jesus turns around in chapter 2, verse 13, and he commends the church by saying, You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So Antipas is held up as one who followed in the footsteps of Jesus as a faithful witness. And then throughout the book, that's what the church does, isn't it? Isn't it? Like when we read chapters 11 to 12, the church conquers by being faithful witnesses unto death, just like their king, Jesus. So keeping this prophecy also includes imitating the faithful Christian life that Jesus commends to his hearers. And that we see in the person of Jesus himself. We also keep this prophecy by heeding the implicit warnings. Now sometimes the warning is very explicit, right? Come out of Babylon lest you share in her plagues. It just says it. But other times the warning is implied by dramatic scenes. Like the horde of demon-like locusts in chapter 9 verses 1 to 11. They come to torment only those who do not have the seal of God, which later in the book tells us that those were the people who were worshiping idols and practicing sexual immorality. But what's the implied warning of this demon, these demon locusts attacking those who are unsealed? If you give yourself to idols, if you give yourself to sexual immorality, you open yourself to a dark and demonic misery, right? It's meant to grab you and shake you free from your idols. 
You see the horrors that would drive anybody away. So you keep the prophecy by heeding the warnings explicit in John's visions. You also keep the prophecy by seeing the world the way God does. Revelation belongs to a particular genre that's designed to captivate your imagination. Our minds are often blunted by the redundancy of the day-to-day. But Revelation kind of pulls back the curtains on your day to show you heavenly realities that are behind them. Like a dragon seeking to devour you. Or the lamb who has conquered the dragon. Right? He pulls back the curtain and he shows you a beast behind the worldly powers. He shows you Babylon seeking to lure you away from Christ. And then he shows you the Lamb enthroned in heaven. The Lamb walking in the midst of the churches and nourishing the church in tribulation. We keep this prophecy when we let its view of the world shape our view of the world and then respond accordingly. And then one more, though I I doubt I've covered them all. We keep this prophecy by living consistently with our identity in Christ. I mean, throughout Revelation, Jesus calls us a kingdom of priests. Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you did ransom for God a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We're already a kingdom and priests to God. That is who you are. Jesus has already done the work to make us this kind of people. And in chapters 2 and 3, that's why Jesus rebukes the churches that are out of step with that identity. And he commends the churches that are in step with that identity. So remember who you are, the kingdom of priests. Remember the name that you bear is the Lamb. He has put his seal on your forehead. You belong to the Lord. He wrote his name there on you. He opened the way for you to serve in God's presence now. So now it's a matter of squaring your life with what's already true about your identity. Listen, Revelation isn't written to tickle your curiosity about the future. It's not written for you to determine the precise timing of end-time events. Revelation exists to help a suffering church remain faithful to Jesus in a very deceptive, worldwide assault by the dragon and his beast-like minions. The real mark of those who understand this book is not that they show up at prophecy conferences. It's not that they can parse it all out on a whiteboard for you. The real mark of those who understand this book is that they keep the words written in it. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and in His footsteps they bear public witness to His name in the face of death and suffering. These are the blessed ones. These will experience true life in Christ. These are also the ones who have washed their robes 
Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. I think this is amazing. So there are, you know, Revelation is a book of sevens, right? We've seen seven series, sevens. This this one right here, number verse 14, is the seventh blessing. It just so happens to be the one that says, blessed are those who wash their robes. We've seen this language of washing once before. Chapter 7, verse 14, the angel says it of those coming out of the great tribulation. And we get a, a little bit more detail there. He says they have... Chapter 7, verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And you go like, how does blood make something white? Well, in Revelation, white sometimes symbolizes purity, right? Holiness. If you combine that with blood, we've got ourselves an allusion to uh, the priesthood in Exodus 29 Verse 21. And it's there we learn that that priests could not enter God's presence unless their robes were first made holy by a sacrifice. You cannot enter God's presence unless your robes were made, first made holy by a sacrifice. Only then could they enter. And remember, John is seeing the church as the kingdom of priests. He is seeing the church that God has welcomed the church as his priests into his presence based on the lamb's sacrifice, Jesus. So Jesus' blood has cleansed them. Jesus' blood takes away their sins, the things making them unclean, making them unholy. They're all gone. So now they can come in. Those who choose not to wash their robes remain unclean. That's why he also says in verse 15, outside are the dogs. Not the literal animal. Dogs were a metaphor for those who were unclean. A male prostitute is called a dog in Deuteronomy 23:18. But dogs can also encompass the fool in Proverbs 26 verse 11. Those who are hostile to the gospel in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Or false teachers in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. And that's the idea here as well. It means people unclean because of their opposition to Jesus. They're outside, it says, with the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices Falsehood. You see the contrast between the people who embrace God's trustworthy and true words and live their lives accordingly. They are pictured here as being washed with the Lamb's blood and welcomed into God's presence. And those who have rejected that trustworthy and true word and have instead practiced falsehood, they are outside. Outside the city doesn't mean right outside the gates. 
We know from elsewhere that it means the lake of fire. Those who reject the cleansing blood of Jesus remain unclean in their sins, and with no sacrifice to make them holy, these people cannot enter God's presence. But if you wash your robes in Jesus' blood, you are welcome. You are welcome into God's city. You are welcome to eat from His tree of life. If you believe that Jesus died to wash away your sins, you will gain life in God's presence. What wrongs have you done this week? Are, are, are there ways you partnered with the rebel kingdoms of Revelation? What good things should you have done, but you chose not to? Before God's commands, what guilt weighs upon your conscience right now? Brothers and sisters, let, this word of, let the word of this prophecy persuade you to wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Whatever it is you've done, come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus. John has written this book first and foremost for the seven churches. And he's telling, he's encouraging them to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb is full of mercy, ready to wash away your sins. Don't wait any longer. The time is near, John says. Come to Him today and wash your robes. Let John's testimony persuade you to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That you might find yourselves blessed in the new heaven and the new earth. Right in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that You have sent Jesus into the world to be the Lamb. We thank You for the cross and how He atoned for our sins there and how upon Him He absorbed the wrath of God. We thank You that He is our propitiation. He is our expiation. And He is our justification. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for such beautiful words. Thank you for such a beautiful work. And because of that work, Lord, now help us keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Help us to prepare for Jesus' coming in all that we do. Say, think, and commit ourselves to this week. Amen.